This is the fourth part of the series on my MA thesis. Uh, this expanded version is called On Saint Stories and the Self. We have previously discussed problems in modernity, this issue of our vision being disconnected from action, and our action is inspired by the great myths of our world, mythology, the mythos of um, things that are bigger than us. Um, the part following that, we discussed Adorno and Horkheimer's criticisms of modernity, and then we discussed uh, Charles Taylor's views of the self and the modern age, and how we can relink ourselves to the thing, the the cosmia around us, um, through methods of communal iterative reasoning and the best account principle. We're going to put this together with Newman's. Uh, Newman's philosophies found in the grammar of ascent as a means by which we might recover ourselves through the criticisms of Adorno and Horkheimer, through the reconstruction of Charles Taylor, and into Newman's view of the self through the illative sense. So we've received these valuable insights from the social cultural dynamics from the writers that we've previously discussed. Taylor was especially helpful in pointing out the great gains in clairvoyance, as he says, which might come from heeding the call of the good and the pursuit of the good, um, even, not in spite of, even within our pluralistic society. But what does this process of clairvoyance acquisition look like in a given individual, a specific individual? St. John Henry Newman, in an essay in aid of a grammar of ascent, offers a helpful theological anthropology and a phenomenological account of this process. So for Newman, the siren's call uh, takes the form of the transcendentals and ultimately the Christian God. Living in reality entails responding to this epic call, this journey. And since it comes from an internal hearing, it is therefore properly basic. So in the previous sections, we discussed how on one level, something that comes from this appeal that tugs at our heart um, could be considered to be subjective since it's something based on our heart. At the same time, we realize that something like this is actually objective because we're, we're gaining it from we're gaining this insight and knowledge from more than just an opinion or a feeling or a preference. There is an actual foundational source from which we are drawing upon our desires for a better world. Um, and that, as I, as I said, Newman's terms, this is something properly basic. It is foundation and fundamental to who we are. In the same way that it is properly basic for us to eat, uh, for us to need to eat, or for us to have a need to breathe. It's properly basic for us to follow these constitutive goods and to then acquire them not through uh, means of ill repute, but through, say, Taylor's forms of communal iterative reasoning, his A to B principle and all that. But there's also this other aspect, as we've mentioned as well, this disconnection between vision and action. We have to have a capacity to respond. And Newman points to children, um, who he says... Uh, they listen, indeed, with wonder and interest to fables and tales. Children have a dim, shadowy sense of what they hear, but they have within them that which actually vibrates, responds, and gives a deep meaning to the lesson of their first teachers. 
This is an interesting account. He's referring to a childlike faith, again, not something like a, a blind leap of faith into the darkness for a broad, sort of unchallenged, unchecked hope for that, that something good might come out of it. No, he's referring to, again, this, this aspect of something foundational. He calls the child's innocent, um, you know, not like an adult who, who have had myths and fantastical thinking beaten out of them. Um, the, the, the child is in a way responding to what these myths are doing to them. I think often of say like, um, Arthurian myths, or, or if you want to go a little bit deeper, referring to them as say grail myths, where there is a sort, there's a sense in which, um, we have these competing claims, uh, from, from a broader culture. So for instance, there's this competing claim from this chivalric knighthood, uh, sometimes running up against the claims in that time, uh, say an Arthurian myth, uh, the roots of Christianity, uh, which are ultimately against violence. And how does this come up against jousting and things like that? Um, and the child hearing, uh, say, Arthurian stories themselves, they want to, you know, pick up their own homemade lances or ride about on horses and seek after honor and glory and so forth, these, these things. Uh, to go back to Newman's point, these children have within them something that vibrates and responds to the myth. You know, they can't just hear the story and say, oh, neat story, but they, they need to find their own, their, ar their own armor. Uh, they need to find their own castles to live in, to, to be, to have those things enter their own worlds this external world that they're hearing about in stories. This platonic echo is an indication of goodness of fit emerging from one's reaction to the truth of sirens, that is, to the truth of religion and, and God. Newman's intention is not to provide a sociological genealogy here of religiosity acquisition, but rather to demonstrate how one can, quote, become possessed of such an image, God, over and above mere notions of God. In doing so, that person brings further clarity to the objective and subjective dimensions of religious and moral experience. So again, we talked about this sort of dual nature of something emerging from us as being in a sense objective and being in a different sense subjective. But I think allowing ourselves to have this movement that responds to the call of myth, the call that requires us to participate and not just hear about it in this trivial way. And this is what Newman describes here as being possessed by this image versus having a mere notion of an image. In Grammar of Ascent, in Grammar, he'll talk about this difference between this notional ascent and this real ascent. There's something that comes from how we might say in our terms, knowing some facts and trivia about something versus, say, embodying something or having that thing embody us, perhaps. By doing this, we bring we bring clarity to, to this, this, this issue of subjective versus objective. So according to Newman, the process of, to borrow Taylor's term, clairvoyance acquisition begins with first principles, so this thing that's properly basic, which he describes abstractions, not in this materialistic sense, but abstractions from particular experiences, which are deployed in very specific discourses and seem to go beyond any natural intuition. For example, such as just as one assents to the existence of the external world through the data of the senses, so too does one assent to the existence of God, perhaps, through the data of the conscience, that is, the feeling that one attends, that attends the doing of right and wrong. So to, to continue this illustration, so I can say, yes, the grass is green by using my eyes, looking towards the ground where grass generally, where I know grass grows, looking at the color, 
knowing what that visual data corresponds to in terms of a word and communicating that to somebody by saying, I have looked outside, I have looked towards the ground, found the grass, saw the color of the grass, and I am telling you now that the grass is green. So that whole process there, um, I've used, you know, sort of something scientific in, in a way, I guess, this observation and, and, and then synthesis and representation of it. Uh, in a similar way, there is this way that we can acquire things, acquire data in other means. There is an analog from looking, observing, rationalizing, and, and sharing data. There is an analog to experiencing that same thing in the realm of the conscience. Of course, I know the tools to find out what color the grass is. I know what I need to do. I need to look outside and to look through a window or, you know, find a door and then open the door and then walk outside. That seems relatively straightforward to us, of course. <laughs> That's the point of this illustration. But there are similar methods that we have lost Methods that have been essential to us, methods that have been straightforward and commonsensical to us to find the data, if we, if we want to call it that, of these mythic stories. That's something we've, we've lost because first principles, which come from deep inside, have been relegated. Rather, to understand the data that comes through uh, first principles, our acknowledgement of them and living within them, one simply has to begin with them. It's tempting to see Newman's description of first principles uh, within them, a modern project of searching and naming to find a sure foundation, right? I, I've got something provable, right? This is a first principle, therefore it's this scientific fact, it's canon. Um, we're not trying to have a sure foundation upon which to build certain knowledge. That is not what Newman is doing, and he's very clear about this by his extended criticism of Locke. He quotes Locke when Locke says, quote, No evidence can justify us in believing the truth of a statement which is contrary to or outside of the uniformity of nature. From Newman's perspective, Locke's claims demonstrated a functional fixedness and a lack of phenomenological creativity in modern rationalistic and empirical approaches. And we've obviously covered a lot of ground when, when, when dealing with this. He's going against something that we'd call foundationalism. There's this great article by uh, David Schneck that I'm quoting here, this complex ascent um, versus a foundational view of the world. Again, this sort of modernistic bend and trying to find these solid answers. Once we, once we get this foundation, and then we can build on top of that, something similar to Descartes' project, you could say. The foundation, if there's a foundationalism in Descartes, it would be to say, I think, therefore, I am. There is this I am-ness that is a foundation from which I can build the rest of my philosophy. Again, that's not quite what Locke is doing, but the foundationalism within Descartes would be like that. Um, further, from Newman's perspective, Locke's claims um, cause this dichotomy between human experiences and our data collection. Newman says, um, after all, man is not a reasoning animal. He is a seeing, feeling, contemplating, acting animal. He is influenced by what is direct and precise. If we determine to begin with proof, we shall ever be laying our foundations. We shall turn theology into evidences. We shall never get at our first principles. Resolve to believe nothing, and you must prove your proofs and analyze your elements, sinking farther and farther till you come to the broad bosom of skepticism. So, you know, he's using these terms, foundations, skepticism, you know, believing nothing. Again, we're seeing these influences of these, these thinkers. Um, like I mentioned Descartes, mentioned Locke here. This problem is the, the more we begin to define, the more we begin to name and nominalize, 
the more we lose, we, we drift further away from the source of where, where our knowledge comes from, the, the participation of the external and the internal, the first principles, the properly basic things aligning with what, uh, aligning with what we see in the real world. We end up with simply skepticism. According to Newman, the only way to avoid the abyss of skepticism is to begin with this childlike way of being in the world. This is not a reference to blind faith or naive ignorance. Rather, this has to do more with a sense of wonder and openness to the world. Newman here mentions evidences. I think it's important here to realize that there is a way that Christian apologetics can quickly become something like a Baconian project within of themselves. Um, a book by Myron Penner, The End of Apologetics, talks about this. How, it, how, say, a Christian's ability to want to prove the nature of their faith actually ends up, again, sort of negating these first principles, rather than talking about this internal sense that requires us to look for the pantheon. We have to prove the pantheon. It's putting us on, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're sort of tripping on ourselves to, to make the point. Rather, we can simply say, look inside, <laughs> look in your heart, they're there. And of course, that isn't a, that isn't a apologetic defense, as it were. That isn't, a, that isn't an argument, as it were. But that's not exactly what we're talking about. We're not attempting to build an apologetic here. Uh, so this idea of the childlike sense, um, let's quote Newman again. Newman says, of the two, I would rather have to maintain that we ought to begin with believing everything that is offered to our acceptance than that it is our duty to doubt of everything. The former, indeed, links the true way of learning. In that case, we soon discover and discard what is contradictory to itself. The Catholic religion, what he believes, is reached by inquirers from all points of the compass, as if it mattered not where a man began, so that he had an eye and a heart for the truth. So look what he's saying here. There's one way of saying we can, we can break down everything that exists in the world and rebuild it up with our evidences. And, and that should prove to us in this infinitely extrapolatable way um, that this thing is true. Newman's not saying that. He's simply saying that the way that one comes to a religion, specifically Catholicism, it doesn't matter what you have to break down and deconstruct to get there. It's simply kind of is true within itself. You can find it from wherever. You don't need to use a specific kind of rationalism. Again, what, what Adorno and Horkheimer call this sort of bourgeois uh, way of seeing the world, right? If you don't live in this bourgeois world, you may not come to this same kind of understanding that Locke did, um, you know, a, a kind of world that, that looks down on sort of simpering religious people anyways. We can see the, 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 the roots of this bougie sort of uh, philosophy anyways. Uh, Newman makes that clear. But also his reference to the heart is important, for Newman follows what one might describe as a heuristics of the heart, the seat of the intellect, will, and emotions. Cor ad cor loquitur was more than a deco de decoration on a cardinalate crest. It was a philosophy of life and thinking for Newman. In his sermon, Love the Safeguard of Faith, he writes, quote, can it indeed be doubted that the great majority of those who have sincerely and deliberately given themselves to religion, who take it for their portion and stake their happiness upon it, have done so not on an examination of evidence, but from a spontaneous movement of their hearts towards it? Now, again, there's something radical in his, in his expression here of not, not denying, again, we can read a lot of Newman and realize that he's written a whole <laughs> apologia pro vita sua, right? So it's important to him. 
But what he's talking here, the movement, the thing that really gets us going, the thing that connects vision to action is this what he calls spontaneous happening. These, these different things align and they cause us to come to a different point of view. For Newman, the heart is central to the whole self's integration, bringing one's whole nature, passions, and personality towards virtue, and the doing and the doing of virtuous things promptly with ease and with delight. In other words, it is in the heart that one finds the vital connection between moral aspirations and the motivation to act upon them. Let's continue with another quote from Newman. The heart is commonly reached not through reason but through the imagination. By means of direct impressions, by the testimony of facts and events, by history, by description, persons influence us, voices melt us, looks subdue us, deeds inflame us. Many a man will live and die upon dogma. No man will be a martyr for a conclusion. I mean, this is just just Newman's just great mind working there. I love that quotation from him that he's not, again, he's not denying reason. He's not denying reason, but he, but he is saying what reaches deep inside is something that has the capability of reaching deep inside into the, into the soul, not simply the brain. (laughs) He's talking here about the imagination, which I think is a word that perfectly aligns with the word myth that we've been using a lot. There's something more direct the story, which is just a recounting of something, he says, can give a direct impression. The using of the heart, therefore, is a first principle, and first principles are at the heart of the self. Note in dialectica placuit Deus salvum facere populum suum. As the heart responds to the siren's call, the person is guided along the path from first principles to firm belief, the path that Taylor described as consisting of A to B moves toward greater clairvoyance by what Newman calls the illative sense. The illative sense. This is our, this is our key here. Um, where, where Taylor talked about these A to B moves, what makes those things click, as it were, what causes us to go from A to B, when B aligns and we believe it, we have this real assent for it, this is when our illative sense has kicked in. But let's talk about this. Um, Cardinal Dulles summarizes Newman's illative sense in this way, and I quote, The illative sense is the capacity to appraise the force of evidence and to identify the point at which it suffices to warrant a firm conviction. Abstract logic, Newman argued, will never tell you when you have a sufficient accumulation of probabilities to exclude the risk of error. The farmer who is weather-wise can accurately predict when the rain will fall, but will probably be unable to assign logical ground for the prediction. The lover can tell at a glance whether the beloved is troubled or ill. In judgments of this character, we rely upon a spontaneous, this, again this word, spontaneous impression in which we synthesize ingredients too varied and too subtle for enumeration. Let's talk about this then. This illative sense. Uh, it'll sound familiar maybe in some things, like the, the farmer or the fisherman looking at the weather and predicting something about that. Or, or um, What we want to just really hit on here is that the illative, the illative sense is not something that can be... There are so many variables in how we make decisions that we can't make a formula out of it. The other thing is, 
we can't always describe why the elitive sense has has kicked in. And again, I'll be using this phrase kicked in because it's hard to describe it really when this happens. Um, one might use decision theory to, to, to kind of maybe post hoc see why one has made a decision or not. You know, we could describe this, this epistemic range being reached, uh, suspension of disbelief, all these different things. Um, but again, those things are rather empirical and will not get to the heart of, of a change of mind or a uh, full ascent of belief. But let's, let's further break down the illative sense. For Newman, it has four basic characteristics. It is first exercised in one and the same way for all concrete matters. Two, it is domain specific in its practical sense of things. Three, it is discursive, having some traceable, consistent, or log logical aspect to it. And four, it is its own sanction and the ultimate test of truth and error in all of our inferences. Um, special thanks, <laughs> shout out to John Connolly in his article summarizing um, those, those four different aspects there. Let's talk about each of those four aspects then. So first, to say that it is exercised in the same way is to say that there is a gut feeling or instinct that is interpreted by individuals as their illative sense activates. Uh, so it should be noted that an illative reaction is not evidence of a thing's rightness or wrongness. Quote, even if there is an illative sense, it may be no more reliable than poor eyesight or poor memory. The feeling itself, however, remains indefectible to the one who judges or takes action based upon it. So let's go back to that communal iterative reasoning. Somebody might believe a really dangerous or damaging or non-pro-social belief that they feel has come about them from their heart. Well, this doesn't make that thing foundationally true if we're going to use these kinds of categories here. Rather, that thing, what's trying to be identified here is that... This, this gut feeling that, that exercises itself somewhere on our being is something that is true to us, is what he's saying, right? You, don't, you, you cannot live in a world as if that thing that the illative sense has recognized is not true. So, for instance, take the fact that Cardinal Newman himself was a convert from Anglicanism to Catholicism. He strongly, truly believed in Anglicanism. Um, that was something that was indefectible to him. The whole confluence of facts and reasoning and, and beliefs and experiences led him to believe that that thing was true, and nothing could have shaken him from it. However, he objectively believed, later in life, that that view was incorrect. And so, after his conversion, his, his illative sense kicked in in a different way uh, and caused his beliefs in Catholicism to become uh, indefectible. But again, and we can see this happening for Newman, he came to that conclusion not just by meditating on his own thoughts, but by reasoning and transitions in community. Let's talk about the second aspect, uh, as we've talked about here, for the illative sense. It's the idea that the illative sense is domain-specific. Um, there's a noetic proficiency that is required. A, quote, some version of cultivated season experience on a given subject matter that is required for the sense to activate. So this does not mean that it cannot activate across different fields, ways of thinking, or styles of learning, but rather that the illative sense's activation cannot be extrapolated from one individual's practice of the illative sense in a specific domain to another unpracticed domain. The gut feeling only works in a field in which one has developed proficiency through considerable experience. 
So that the to think about Cardinal Dulles's illustration, you know, the person who is deeply in love could recognize a lot about their lover's reaction or thoughts or feelings. But if they have no experience as a farmer, they're not going to get the same illative reaction, even though the quote gut feeling um, is the same gut feeling they feel one way or another in a different scenario. However, it should be noted that someone who has practiced illative thinking and reasoning in one vein may find it easier to develop an illative sense in another. And again, this goes back to this need for communal reasoning. Third, there is a discursive nature of the illative sense, sometimes used synonymously with the term uh, ratiocinative, and it has to do with its relation or inference uh, of inference or reasoning from one's thinking in relation to other cases, or perhaps in a historical sense. Both of these senses I mean to use the term illative in, that we can draw from the ancient myths to understand uh, who we are and what we believe, but there's also this... Um, inference that comes to be and inference is a big part of what uh, Newman describes in in his in the grammar so what we want to say is the conclusions passed to us from the illative sense are not random there is a multiplicity of combined experiences and data and not even just from us from somewhere outside of ourselves too if we include within ourselves the thinking from these myth um the mythoi um and it's those things that cause us to draw this or that conclusion in the same way that the farmer or the lover examines and makes a judgment. While one might be able to look back on their own life and say, oh yeah, I see why this or that happened or turned out in such a way or why I came to believe this thing and not that thing, no inferential statistical equation could possibly hope to lay out all the variables necessary to predict what an illative sense is able to do. So Newman uses two images to illustrate this process by which lines of ratiocination converge towards certainty. So the first has to do with geometry. He says, uh, We know that a regular polygon inscribed in a circle, its sides being continually diminished, tends to become a circle as its limit. Um, but in like manner, uh, or in like manner, the conclusion in a real or concrete question is foreseen and predicted rather than actually attained foreseen in the number and direction of accumulated premises, which all converge to it, and as the result of their combination, approach it more nearly in any assignable difference, yet do not touch it logically. I think another way, another illustration we could use in our modern times, uh, combining both of these illustrations that Newman says, it's kind of when you think of a, uh, like a picture on your phone. Um, let's say you have a picture on your phone of just a basic plain circle, right? Um, but your phone is made up of little squares, uh, little pixels, basically. This is uh, a gross oversimplification. Apologies to any friends in graphic design or media. <laughs> um, let's say you were to zoom in on this picture of a circle on your phone. Eventually, if you zoom in far enough, you're going to see that this circle, even though it's smooth and rounded around its edges, is actually made up of this stepped circular pattern of squares that go all the way around the, the perimeter of this circle. If you zoom in far enough, your circle is made up of hard-edged squares. This step, uh, the stepped pixelization is really what you're seeing. Newman is saying, this is kind of what, ha what we see when we zoom in, <laughs> we pinch to zoom in to our conclusions about things. We think that we have traversed this very logical schema all the way from our beginning point to our ending point to our conclusion. But the reality is, when we look close enough, that logic or whatever it is only takes us so far in making that conclusion. There's actually this stepping um, that's taking place that makes it not as smooth as we might think from far away. 
the illative sense in this way um, helps us kind of say, okay, I get, it makes sense. It follows, right? It may not be a one-to-one correlation between the facts and logic, as it were, to the conclusion. But I can see, looking back, that this actually lines up. Like I said, it it follows. Uh, Let's go to the second metaphor. So in the second metaphor, he compares the process of convergence, we might call it here, to a metal cable made up of bundles of woven threads. An integral understanding of the world may be more like this, wherein one thread of material may be wrought together with many other strands to form a braided strength. So that's to say, there is this, this strand, this, this cable of, um, of science in, in a materialistic sense. There is a cable of myth that we can bring together, a cable of religion. And when bound together in this, in this metal cable, um, it has the flexibility that it needs, but it also has the strength it needs to, to, to handle and support what it needs to support, say on a bridge or something like that. So finally, this fourth aspect of the illative sense. The illative sense is that which has the final word or makes the judgment call on stimuli. Fundamentally, the listening one does to the illative sense has an influence over all the other faculties in our reasoning process. But also, when when people decide upon something on the basis of their analysis here, on their experiences, on the advice from others, the illative sense is that inner voice which finds a particular decision or thought reasonable and actionable or otherwise. Actionable. It's important. Actionable. If one is not listening to the full cable, the wrought iron strength, they're going to have a hard time coming to a conclusion and taking action. Let's talk about two further ideas that should be viewed in light of this illative sense. The critical threshold and the reorienting vision. So the critical threshold is a point at which when a cumulative case has been gathered, the illative sense says this is true. Further, attaining certitude is understood as occurring all at once. This real ascent, it occurs all at once. It does not admit of degrees. Just as the boiling point of water, continuous with the preceding temperature increase, is a critical threshold for a qualitative transition to steam. And somewhat like steam, once someone reaches a certain point in certitude after investigation of proof, intellectual satisfaction and repose, their certitude towards a certain thing becomes, in that case, irreversible. So just like with steam, like you need all of your (laughs) degrees in Fahrenheit or um, whatever form of measurement you want to use to get you to the boiling point. Once you've reached that, you have now boiled. The illative sense has kicked in. This is now the right thing to do and act upon. Um, if you've, if you're looking for a certain product to purchase, you can read reviews, you can look at the price, you can compare these different things. At a certain point, something kicks in and says, this is the right one to get based on these different things that I've measured or looked at or have a, have a feeling about, the, just a, a gut sense about it. Um, and that's when you make your decision. And it's irreversible in that sense. He's, he's not saying here, again, just like these other things, there's a mitigation that's needed. So maybe you purchase this thing and it, and it arrives and it's not, not actually what, what you decided. But in the moment that you decided to buy it, that's when it was irreversible. You made a decision. You went from this, you went from the aspect of research to the aspect of having come to a conclusion and acted upon it. So again, there's no formula that the organ of the illative sense uses to, de- to determine factors like variable weight or confidence intervals. Something just clicks at a certain point and boils over into real ascent. 
So let's talk about that reorienting vision. This comes after the threshold has been reached, and it can take some time for it to invade the different properties it experiences and becomes the flavor of somebody's thinking or even personality. This vision is widespread and subsumes the entirety of a way of being, more than a worldview, something like a conversion experience. Once the illative sense has been submitted to, things that one previously would not have had any faith in may rise as plausible prevailing seats of primary authority. Because it uses all the elements and embraces the full self, leaving nothing tied to the mast, all wax scraped away from the ears, it supplies the self with the motivating force to act upon one's convictions. And if done well, in light of Taylor's uh, critiques and in light of what Taylor describes for us in making these decisions together, it may provide for us what we need in answer to these desires that we have for this world bigger than us that we hope to come to in this victorious eschatological way. And that concludes this, this next section here about Newman. In the next, we will be talking about St. Francis and the mythoi of St. Francis and what he can bring for us um, in terms of appealing to this organon of the illative sense and our reasoning.